Hello, I'm John Dennis. It's Thursday the 11th of February. Today, damage to the reputation of Britain's security services after senior judges tell the government to reveal what MI5 and MI6 knew about the torture of a British resident. This is another example of the government conflating national security interests with political embarrassment. Also today, European Union leaders meet in Brussels to discuss Greece's debt crisis. Winnie Madikizela Mandela on the release from prison 20 years ago today of her then-husband, Nelson Mandela. What happened was the viciousness and the brutality of apartheid, you know, forced one to fight more. Eric Schlosser talks to us about his new film, Food Inc. And Vancouver gets ready for the Winter Olympics minus snow. The temperatures in Vancouver are about seven degrees so if there is any precipitation it's going to be rain and so it's going to be a, a wet rather than a snowy Olympics. Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk First, our top story, MI5 has been condemned for misleading the Foreign Office and the courts over the torture of a British resident in Guantanamo Bay. Three of Britain's most senior judges told the government to reveal how British agents were complicit in the torture of Binyam Mohamed. The judges unanimously dismissed objections by David Miliband, the Foreign Secretary, that to disclose this information would be to endanger national security. Miliband made a statement to the Commons after the torture ruling. The paragraphs released today describe information received by our intelligence agencies concerning the conditions of Mr Mohammed's detention by the United States in Pakistan in April 2002. They note specifically that he was subject to sleep deprivation, that he was subject to threats and inducements, and that he was held shackled, and that the treatment, were it conducted by the United Kingdom, would be contrary to undertakings first given to this House in 1972. To repeat, it was not conducted by the UK. Second, now that they are in the public domain, it will also be evident that the paragraphs do not contain information on Mr Mohammed's most serious claims of mistreatment, notably in respect of alleged genital mutilation, during his detention until his release from Guantanamo last year. We, the United Kingdom, have no information to corroborate those allegations. These matters have been raised quite properly by Mr Mohammed in his civil claim for damages and will be addressed there. Third, during the course of these proceedings, allegations of possible criminal wrongdoing by a British official were made. The Home Secretary referred these allegations to the Attorney General for her consideration and they are now the subject of a police investigation. This judgment today is not evidence that the system is broken. Rather, it is the evidence that the system is working and that the full force of the law is available when citizens believe they have just cause. The six judgments in this case, show, plus a closed judgment, show a seriousness of purpose in our legal system that is a vital part of our system of accountability. Lawyer Clive Stafford-Smith is the director of the prisoners' rights charity Reprieve. Well, overall, it's, it's a fantastic decision. I mean, it, it genuinely slaps the government down and says you can't keep hiding this evidence of torture. Mind you, it, it raises probably more questions than it settles, and this is long, long from being over. What, what questions do you think it raises? Well, the first thing is the government is still trying to suppress evidence. So, for example, we had this contretemps in court yesterday where the government was trying to take out a paragraph of, of um, Judge Newberger's decision, and they were trying to take it out because it was just too, too embarrassing. 
Well, that's a crazy basis for doing it, and it's been redacted from the current decision. There's going to be further argument about whether that should be removed. But this is another example of the government conflating national security interests with political embarrassment. And what what of the evidence that has been published? I mean, what does that tell us? The the evidence that's come out in the in the notorious seven paragraphs is very important because for the first time, you, the general public, get to see absolute concrete evidence that the Americans wrote down how they were abusing um, Binyam, and equally important, that the British government officials knew about it before they sent an agent out there to carry on his interrogation. So that's very important. But on the other hand, what the judges say also, which is crucial, is there is a vast body, those are their words, a vast body of material that's not being revealed to the public. And I think that's what you have to remember, that these seven paragraphs are just the crumbs of this criminal conspiracy, and there's a lot more out there. What, can you tell us a bit about uh, Binyam's treatment in Guantanamo for those people who haven't been following the case perhaps so closely? Well, the, the treatment starting long before Guantanamo, starting in Pakistan, began with sleep deprivation, with having a gun stuck in his face and, and being thoroughly abused, horribly abused, and then threatened that if he didn't, quote, cooperate, as in do what the Americans wanted, that he'd be rendered. He was indeed rendered to Morocco, where they took a razor blade to his genitals and various other horrible things. Spent a year and a half there, another five months then in the dark prison in Kabul, where they blasted loud music at him, then Bagram, then Guantanamo, all of which was horrific. All of which is now, according to the judges yesterday, established as a judicial fact. This is no longer a question of Binyam say-so, but no one is disputing that these things happened to him. What about um, David Miliband's insistence that this was intelligence that was shared by the US and so um, we, you know, we can't just go ahead and publish it um, if, that's, if that's happened? Well, I'm very disappointed in Mr Miliband because really, I mean, what world are we living in when we pretend that some sort of protocol between Britain and America where we say to our friends, the Americans, we won't uh, disclose this material that somehow that overrides the Convention Against Torture that gives us an absolute legal requirement that we thoroughly investigate evidence of torture. You know, imagine for a minute, if you will, that Mr. Miliband had entered an agreement with the Mafia that if they told him about evidence of criminal offenses, he'd keep quiet about it. I mean, no one would give him a second uh, thought to that. And it's hard to see in a rational world how Britain and America can strike an agreement to cover up uh, crime, you know, official criminality. Clive Stafford-Smith, and there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk. Also on The Guardian's website. I'm Sarah Phillips from G2, The Guardian's daily features section. In today's issue, users of The Guardian's Soulmates website share their best and worst experiences of online dating. Jenny Kleeman talks to Rajinder Singh, the 78-year-old Sikh man hoping to stand as a candidate for the BMP. And Zan Brooks speculates how integral directors really are to the movie-making process. All this and more at guardian.co.uk forward slash g2. The Winter Olympics are about to begin in Vancouver. Everything's in place except... There's no snow. In fact, they just had the warmest January on record, as Suzanne Goldenberg reports from Washington, where she snowed in. 
no snow and they're doing everything they can to create it from sort of blowing snow out of the air and giant snow cannon, bringing snow in by the truckload, uh, by helicopter, using dry ice, putting uh, sort of tubes of snow beneath uh, mountains. This is all a pretty frantic effort to, to make sure that at this one venue, uh, they do indeed have enough snow on the day. Is there any prospect of genuine snow falling before the games start? Uh, no, the forecast is for rain. The temperatures in Vancouver are about seven degrees. So if there is any precipitation, it's going to be rain. And so it's going to be a, a wet rather than a snow Olympics down there in Vancouver. Now, the problem area is for two events, uh, freestyle skiing and the snowboarding. Uh, two hours to the north, uh, there's another venue, Whistler Mountain, where the alpine skiing takes place. And they've got plenty of snow up there. How will the athletes cope with this substitute snow? Well, apparently they sort of took the athletes out there for a dry run, if you like, on Tuesday afternoon, and the athletes sort of said, well, it feels okay to us now. The The trick is going to be maintaining that quality while you've got all these people hurtling down it. And of course, in the meantime, they could always have some of your snow from Washington, Suzanne. Now, wouldn't that be nice? I mean, we've got plenty of snow here and, and much more on the way. Um, the latest reports are saying that by the time the snow season is over, uh, cities like Washington, Baltimore and Philadelphia could have 100 inches of snow. Of course, it's not the authorities in Vancouver's fault in any sense that it hasn't snowed, but are they embarrassed? Um, well, you know, they keep saying, look, we have Whistler, we have other venues, there's plenty of snow there. Um, I think it is a problem, and they've really been scrambling and doing everything they can to make to make snow. Um, and uh, But, they, you know, the Canadians have put a lot of pride in these Olympics and making them well-organized and making them green, and, and this is certainly embarrassing. Suzanne Goldenberg. My name's John Dennis. You're listening to Guardian Daily. 20 years ago today, Nelson Mandela was released from prison, where he'd spent 27 years leading the struggle against apartheid. He went on, of course, to lead a peaceful transition to multiracial democracy and became South Africa's first black president. Winnie Madikizela Mandela was Nelson Mandela's wife during his incarceration and was herself a potent and articulate advocate of freedom. She told The Guardian's David Smith of her emotions on the 11th of February 1990. It is very difficult to put them in black and white, you know. Uh, the elation and the pain of uh, my daughter having lost the father of her child. As she said, uh, it, those were mixed emotions. But of course, uh, at last, it was a realization of dreams of years and years. It was difficult to believe that at last we are on the final stage of running the last mile to our reparation. Well, that, that was the emotion of the day. Well, there times you'd sort of given up hope and thought it might never... Um, it was hard to, to, to give up hope. The apartheid regime was so vicious, so cruel, that you were made to remember whether you liked it or not. Um, there was no time to even think of giving up because what happened was the viciousness and the brutality of apartheid, you know, forced one to fight more and, and understand within yourself that uh, unless you fought 
as hard as you could. The leadership would die in prison. And in fact, they made us more determined uh, that we would attain our freedom during our lifetime. And on that day 20 years ago, what was the atmosphere like? 20 years ago, I think uh, there was an air of expectation. We had known that there were winds of change as long ago as they were said in Parliament of the Nationalist Party. People were hoping that freedom was in the air. And I think we were prepared to, to finally just give up our lives for what it took to get our leadership out of prison because there was always that fear, that fear that they would die in prison. And just, um, just before the two of you sort of came out into the sunlight to the crowds, I mean, can you remember what was Nelson Mandela's mood like? I think it was great excitement and he's human. There were also, you must have at a certain point be afraid, afraid of what he was coming out to after uh, 28 years in prison. And having left in the 60s, you come back to a society that expected so much of you at the age of over 70. Um, I think he, he himself didn't know what awaited him outside. Actually, we were all just shocked at the response of, of the nation and that at last, at last, we were going to be free because we knew from that day that uh, he would lead us with the rest of the leadership to freedom. Winnie Madikizela Mandela talking to David Smith. The Guardian Media Group, which owns The Guardian, cut its historic link to Manchester this week when it sold its regional newspaper business to Trinity Mirror. In this week's Media Talk podcast, our chief executive Carolyn McCall talks to presenter Matt Wells, who asks her whether £7 million was a good deal. You know, you look at the cash value and you, you can say, well, it's not very much. But actually, you know, the £70 million revenue in that business was in decline. And you and I both know that structurally, you know, regional newspapers has been at the very sharp end of disruption uh, from digital. And, you know, for us, it was a very small scale business, you know, has 4% of the regional press market. And despite the really important historic connections, what it was set up to do for The Guardian was a safety net. And it stopped being a safety net some years ago. And, and that's why we sold, and that's why actually £45 million is good value. Uh, well, you say it's good value. It might be a good deal for The Guardian, but it's not a good deal for the journalists who work at, uh, uh, at GMG Regional Media, is it? Because, I mean, if they thought your cost-cutting measures in the past few years were bad, you know, just wait till Slide Bailey gets, gets her, her hands on them. It's Trinity Mirror are I'm, renowned for well, their cost-cutting, aren't I'm they? I'm not sure that's right. I mean, I think you'll have to wait and see. Carolyn McCall, and you can hear more on that on this week's Media Talk podcast on Friday at guardian.co.uk slash media talk. Greece's public deficit is 12.7%. That's more than four times higher than Eurozone rules allow. Today, Greece's debt problems, the worst crisis to hit the euro, are being discussed by EU leaders. In Greece yesterday, flights were grounded, schools were closed and hospitals were operating an emergency-only service. Thousands joined street protests against the government's plans to freeze pay, raise taxes and reform pensions. Helena Smith reports from Athens. Well, this was the first backlash against 
what are perceived to be as truly unfair measures announced by the socialist government to deal with Greece's um, runaway public debt. Tens of thousands of Greek civil servants backed by militant leftists took to the streets of both Athens and Thessaloniki in northern Greece to denounce the measures. It was a very lively protest, although not marred by the sort of violence that we've seen in the past in Greece. Will Greece have to be bailed out by other European countries? That is a good question, and I think it's one that's very much on the mind of officials in the European Commission. European Union leaders will be meeting in Brussels today to discuss the economic crisis in Europe generally, and Greece is thought to, and it is widely thought that Greece will top the agenda of their talks. The prospect of a bailout for Greece has been discussed in the context of some of the big guns in Europe, like Germany and France, perhaps weighing in with support in what would be bilateral loans to Greece. So that is being discussed. And interestingly, George Papandreou, the Greek prime minister, did hold talks with the French president, Nicolas Sarkozy, in Paris ahead of the EU summit today. Uh, OK, and what, what will the Greek government be hoping uh, comes out of today's summit in Brussels? I think the Greek government's main priority is, one, restoring the very battered credibility of Greece abroad, not least among uh, its EU partners and Eurozone partners, and also convincing um, its EU partners that, yes, it really does mean business, that it does want to resolve this huge, huge public debt crisis, a huge problem with public finances in Greece, and that it means to implement these painful, these enormously painful and unpopular measures, despite the popular back- backlash and the sort of, sort of protest that we've seen in Greece. Helena Smith. In his 2001 book Fast Food Nation and the film of the same name, Eric Schlosser looked at the growth and influence of America's fast food industry. Now he's the co-producer and writer of a new film, Food Inc., directed by Robert Kenner, which examines the corporations that control the food supply in the US. Jason Solomons spoke to both of them for our Film Weekly podcast. Well, the film really looks at uh, the ways in which they are marketing food that's creating terrible health problems for the consumers. Uh, The way they produce the the food is awful for poor immigrant workers. uh, And when it comes to meat, these industrial operations are are like a, a science fiction dystopia in how they treat animals. I mean, we've been eating meat for thousands of years and we've never been raising livestock in these strange industrial factories that are that are incredibly cruel and then when you look at pesticide use and GMOs and their potential impact on the environment this system is a disaster and it's not that these corporate executives are terrible people uh, deliberately trying to poison us it's that the profit motive has gotten way out of hand and there is no uh, strong regulation and when you get that amount of power I mean in the film we look at Monsanto which controls over 90% through its patents of the soya crop in the United States and 60 or 70% of the maize crop. These are two of our you know, major commodities. 
that amount of power is corrupting. And that's, that's a very old uh, uh, wisdom that, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we need to um, break up some of these big companies. And, and in, in terms of how you, one of us, you know, each of us can make a difference, just direct our, our spending as much as we can in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing that I think, you know, we have to understand is that we all love cheap food you know we're all drawn to it it's all it's fantastic we spend less of our paycheck on this food than we ever have in the history of time and and we're you know we like it the problem is it's coming to us at a very high unseen cost and i think as we start to see the consequences of these costs that we'll start to reconsider this cheap food because you know people say isn't it elitist to think you know poor people can eat good food Mm. the problem is we're subsidizing bad food that we're giving to poor people that's making them sick and they're spending lots of money on medicine or they're becoming non-functional so I think this you know the way we've set the system up it's elitist that we're creating a system that's making people sick. Eric Schlosser and Robert Kenner talking to Jason Solomons. And you can listen to Film Weekly at guardian.co.uk slash film. Phil Maynard and Tim Maybe were the producers of today's edition of Guardian Daily. My name's John Dennis. Thank you for listening.